Well, if you think last week caused lots of questions for you, hold on. Today promises to do the same thing. Um, this week you're going to get a, a, a postcard in the mail if you're on the New Hope mailing list. A little postcard says, I won't back down on it. You may have seen the slide as we were waiting for the service to start up on the screen. Um, starting a new series next week that's only going to be six weeks long, stepping away from the book of John for six weeks. And uh, specifically because um, typically the Sunday after Labor Day, whew, attendance you know, soars because of everybody that has cottages and went camping and went away for the summer are all back on one Sunday. And a lot of new people who uh, will be investigating New Hope will be stepping in to join us as well. And so um, I didn't want to have them just step right into the book of John. So we're going to do this six-week series called I Won't Back Down. And it's geared especially for high school students and college students in the sense that we're going to be looking at, um, first of all, David and his battle with Goliath. And then we're going to be looking at some of the heroes of the faith, guys who came up and women who came up against incredible odds. And they refused to back down in the midst of what they were facing. So when you receive that little postcard, that'll be your reminder. That's what we're going for next week. And we're going to start off with David and Goliath next week, Sunday. So you can be studying that little passage in advance. Um, this particular text we're looking at this morning, uh, just to be straight up with you, is a breaking point for many people. For those who choose not to walk with Jesus, uh, this particular passage kind of lays it out on why there's a dividing line for people who refuse to walk with Christ and for those who totally embrace him. And at this point, what we're looking at this morning where we left off in John last week was a dividing line for people who followed Christ at that time. It went from thousands of people down to a handful for about a year. And then after the death of Christ, it exploded again and took off around the world. But because what Jesus has to say here is so hard, just want you to be prepared in advance, it was very hard for the people of the first century as well. It touches a little bit on the issue that we talked about last week with predestination. It's going to make your brain hurt a little bit, I promise you. Um, I don't know if you've ever sat through an academic sermon, other than every single Sunday that you're here. Um, but this one's going to even feel more so. And so I especially wanted you to pick up the study notes this morning when you came in. If you didn't grab the bulletin and the study notes, you've still got time. Walk out to the atrium and grab one of them off the coffee table so that you can follow along. There's a very specific sequence I want you to see, especially in this first verse. But I want you to understand this is difficult material. And I'm going to give you the best perspective I can on it. You will wrestle with it. Perhaps you'll wrestle with it for the whole six weeks while we step away from John, and we'll come back to it again. But just know that it, it's not easy material. So let's ask God to give us some insight. Let's pray and ask him to give us his Holy Spirit. Would you do that? Father, we understand as people who uh, have set this time aside for you and for your purposes that um, you're first of all honored by that and that you receive glory when people investigate the truths that are laid out in Scripture. And we understand that we have a desire to, to magnify our understanding of you. And so we ask that you would reveal your nature and your character through this text. Show us, Father, specifically what you want us to understand. Give us the eyes to see and the, uh, the intenseness of our heart that would be focused on this material to the degree, Father, that we can walk away from here this morning saying, that was not only time well invested, but this is stuff I really 
want to know more about. So God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would just invade this auditorium. And for everybody here, every single individual, we'll leave here this morning knowing that we've spent time with you and that you're speaking to us through your word. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 51 of John chapter 6 last week. If you're new to New Hope, we're working our way through the book of John. And there are Bibles in front of you. You can follow along that way. It'll also be up on the screen, so you can follow along as well that way. If you don't happen to own a Bible, those Bibles are there for your benefit so that you can take one with you today as our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So consider, if you don't have a Bible, taking one with you this morning when you leave. Verse 51, this is the way it starts out. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, right away we see that there's a human responsibility in what Jesus has said. You, you need to understand that in verse 51, Jesus has laid out the entire plan of how God is going to rescue the planet. And I want to help you understand the sequence of what he's saying here. So first of all, we see there's a human responsibility found in this verse that we have to receive what he's offering. If anyone eats of this bread, and we're not talking about force feeding, you have to willingly receive it. So that's why he says that. So let's look at the specific sequence in which Jesus declares God's plan of action. First of all, and this is in your notes, and you'll see it on the screen as well, he declares, number one, who he is, his qualification. He says, I came down from heaven. Number two, he's saying, I descended from heaven for a purpose. So I'm the bread of heaven. I descended from heaven, number two. And number three, he's providing what we're supposed to have. And it's our responsibility to receive it. The fourth one, if you eat of this bread, you get something. You appropriate or you receive eternal life. So he's being very specific here. The bread that I will give for the life of the world, the entire planet, is, it's offered to everyone without exception if they will receive it. For the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is the part at which the Jews really had a very difficult time in the first century with what he's saying here. So let's put that verse back up on the screen. I'm going to show you how I broke it out. For one through five. Number one, I am the living bread. Two, that came down out of heaven. If anyone, three, eats of this bread, four, he will live forever. So you see the sequence going on here. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In one verse, God's entire plan of salvation, of how he's going to rescue the planet. He's providing the one who descended, who's going to offer his flesh, meaning on the cross, for the entire planet and it will yield eternal life if people will receive it. So let's move on through verse 52 because this is where the Jews recoiled. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, that's a legitimate question, isn't it? I bet if you were in the crowd at that time, you would have asked the same question. Remember, they don't, have, they don't know the whole picture. They don't have the Bible. Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. So they don't have an understanding completely of what he's talking about here. How can he give us his flesh? A legitimate question. Well, was Jesus actually talking about his flesh? Is that what caused them to recoil? What word did he use? Let's see the word that Jesus used for flesh. The word is sarx. Flesh, stripped of skin, 
meat. He's literally talking about a physical body. So the meat of an animal or the body. Now, I'm going to assume at this point some of them got it. Some of them understood what he's talking about, the sacrifice. Others did not get it, and they went to war. It says they, they began to argue. The word is makamahi, and here's what it means. They quarreled. They disputed. They went to war with each other over this issue. So some of the Jews we learned last week were grumbling. Remember that word, gongidzo? And they had displeasure. They were whispering displeasures. Well, they've gone from grumbling now to outright arguing. This is a heated dispute. Why? Because Jesus' words divide. Jesus' words divide the audience. They're trying to grasp what he's saying. Some get it, some don't, and they begin fighting. And so they ask this legitimate question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They begin doing what many people do when they read the Bible. They're mentally wrestling, trying to comprehend what's being said here. Now, this is really important. They did hear him correctly. They did hear him. They did not comprehend. They couldn't rationalize it. So they're reacting. That's what you see is a reaction to the impossibility of this statement. Now, here's a biblical truth for you. Very important, consistent biblical truth that the, without any spiritual perception whatsoever, spiritual truth makes no sense. If you don't have spiritual perception, spiritual truth makes no sense. I want to explain that to you. If you've grown up in the church, perhaps you've been a believer a long time, maybe you've had conversations with coworkers or with friends, family members, who are not believers, who don't read the Bible. And when you talk about spiritual things with them, their eyes glaze over. They absolutely cannot perceive what you're talking about. That's the case in which spiritual perception, it gives you the ability to perceive spiritual truth. What am I talking about? Let's use a practical example. Nicodemus, a brilliant lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court in the time of Christ, came to Jesus at night, an intelligent man, asking a basic question. Look with me on the screen at the question. John 3, 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. See, he didn't have the spiritual perception to understand what Jesus was saying. It was confusing to him. Why is that? Why is that when we talk with certain individuals who read the Bible the same way we do, and you can show them a passage in the Bible, and they don't get it. What's going on? Look with me on the screen, because Scripture speaks to this also. 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man, meaning someone without God, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. That's why. That's why you get the blank look. Individuals can't spiritually appraise it because they don't have the Holy Spirit that God gives when you receive Jesus Christ into your life. So without the Spirit of God, there's things that cannot be perceived. So these individuals in the first century, in this case, they consider his words utter nonsense. These make no sense to us at all. And we know Jesus is not talking about cannibalism here, but they're taking it that way. Do you know that people still argue over this issue today? 
If, if you were raised in the Catholic Church, you might be familiar with the issue that this doctrine is speaking of. In the Catholic Church, they talk about this passage referring to the doctrine of transubstantiation. Uh, allow me just to drill down with you for a minute. We're going to celebrate communion in a few minutes. After we move through this teaching, we're going to celebrate what churches all over the world do. Some churches, the Catholic Church specifically, teaches that what is in the bread and what is in the cup is the literal flesh of Christ and the literal blood of Christ once the priest blesses it because they take this passage as referring to communion. And I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective and theologians around the world, that is not what this is talking about. The issue of transubstantiation is not what this passage is. And if you have difficulty with that, I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you about it after the service, but let me briefly explain it for you. First of all, if it meant when Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will receive eternal life, if he's talking about the communion table here, he's saying that you have the ability through a physical action to receive eternal life. And that's totally contrary to Scripture. Because Scripture says your salvation is the gift of God. It's not anything that you did. It's Him giving it to you. You can't work to earn it. So if you were getting it through the communion table, you'd be doing a work to receive eternal life. And that's contrary to Scripture. Here's another point. Communion, or the Lord's table, had not even been instituted yet. This is long before the crucifixion. And Jesus is talking to an auditorium or a room or a field full of non-believers. We're told in Corinthians that communion is only for believers, for those who name the name of Christ. So very clearly, we've got several points here that help us understand. You can't earn salvation through works and receiving eternal life through taking communion. What the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation is contrary to what Scripture teaches us. I'll be happy to go over that with you because people do still argue over this point today. But I understand this passage is not talking about communion. It's talking about something far larger, which I'm going to explain to you. Verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Can you imagine if this was your first Sunday in church, what this would be like reading this? I mean, this is like, what? <laughs> What's going on here? Okay, so Jesus wants us to really understand this, and he's pretty clear. So first of all, he starts out by using this phrase, truly, truly, amen, amen, meaning clarity. I want to bring clarity to this. Do you get it? So to make sure they got it, Jesus makes himself perfectly clear. You have to not only eat my flesh, then he says something even more repulsive to them. You also have to drink my blood. And this is vulgar to them, especially in the first century in which the Jews were taught and they understood the Old Testament teachings in the book of Leviticus said, you will not drink blood. There's a specific reason God gave us the blood of animals. Look with me on the screen. The law forbids the consuming of blood. I want you to see Leviticus 7, and there's four verses here. It's a little bit longer, but you'll understand why they had the reaction that they did. Verse 10, And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. Verse 14, For as the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat of the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. I knew there was a reason why I didn't like red meat. God's very specific. I like my meat thoroughly cooked. But now, if Jesus, what he said before is nonsense to them, this is vulgar. Now, we know that God never contradicts himself, right? God can't lie. So what God said in the Old Testament still has to be what God says in the New Testament. It can't be inconsistent. If God says you're not to drink blood, you're not to eat blood, you're not to consume flesh in the way that they're talking about, cannibalism, it's still got to be not good with God in the first century. And it's still got to be the case today. So because we know that God never contradicts himself and he never lies, there must be something else going on here. Now let's see the progression I told you it's going to feel a little academic. This one is in your notes. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to see the progression from verse 51 to verse 54. First of all, verse 51, Christ said he gives his flesh for the life of the world. The next part, verse 53, then whoever has not eaten his flesh and his blood has no life whatsoever. And then in verse 54, then whoever eats and drinks has not just life, but has eternal life. And as a result, there's a promise. I will raise him up on the last day. So if you do all the things that Jesus is describing here, he's saying there's a promise of resurrection and eternity with God. So you see the succession of the events here. He's talking about something much, much bigger than just the communion table. Let's move on to verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he, eats, he who eats me, he also will live because of me. So we understand now, because we have the benefit of reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit, he's speaking metaphorically, and he begins to explain what he's talking about by his flesh and blood. So when he says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, what he's talking about is as real as the physical components that he's referring to, even though he's speaking metaphorically, because real food and real drink produce real life. And if we thoroughly ingest what Christ is talking about here, it produces real life. To ingest what Jesus brings us gives us an abiding, permanent relationship with the living God. Do you notice in your passage he didn't just say with God? He said the living God. So as a result of everything that he's offering, you get a permanent relationship with God the Father. Now, up to this point, no one has understood how Jesus as the Messiah is going to redeem the world. Even the 12, the 12 disciples, they don't get it. 
No one up to this point really understands the plan that's in place. It doesn't click with them until after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's when they begin to be able to put the pieces together of what he's talking about when he says, I'm going to give my flesh and I'm going to give my blood. So as he's clarifying his position, these individuals become more and more offended. They actually get to the point where they're ticked off about what he's saying, and Jesus is in danger of losing his entire following. All the thousands that we looked at over the last couple weeks, those whom he fed on the other side of the sea, those who gathered in Capernaum, those who were cramming into the synagogue, people who were climbing over each other trying to get to Jesus, they're all in danger of walking away. But I want you to notice that God never backs down. Just because they don't like what he's saying, Jesus never changes his position. He's saying very clearly, only those who do what he says have everlasting life and no one else. And I want you to understand this. You have to receive it personally. No one else can eat a meal for you, right? That's a very interesting analogy that Jesus used because no one else can eat for you. No one can eat for you by proxy, right? It'd be nice if they could because then maybe we wouldn't gain the weight that we gain. But they can't. We have to eat ourselves. We have to ingest our own food personally. In the same way, these individuals have to have this personal relationship with God the Father. They have to personally take him in. Scripture talks about this in Psalm 49. Look with me on the screen. Psalm 49, 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. So you personally have to appropriate Jesus into your life. So this is big picture we're going to talk about now. We've been drilling down subterranean. Let's go to the 10,000-foot altitude. What's Jesus really talking about? He's talking about the old rugged cross. He's talking about the cross of Calvary. Let me put it in context for you. In order to consume something, to ingest it into your body, it has to die first, right? Even the grain on a stalk, before you can eat the bread, the plant has to die. In order for you, it's no longer a living plant. You have to take it in and eat it. It's a dead plant. So let's picture a field full of black Angus cows. We'll give it another analogy. We're looking out on a field. We see black Angus cows grazing. They look really good. You're driving by. You're thinking, that would look good on my grill. So you take one of those cows... It's still of no benefit to you because you haven't consumed it yet. You take it to the processor, and the processor turns it into steak. And now you've got a freezer full of steak. But it's of no benefit to you because they're still in the freezer, right? See, until it dies and until you ingest it and receive it, it's of no benefit. But once you receive it, that's when everything changes. It begins to bring you life. So what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean to ingest him? It means to bring him into your life. Jesus is offering his own flesh as the price of redemption, as the price to buy you back to God in order to make reconciliation between a sinful man, sinful people, and a holy God. Because we just read back in Leviticus, remember what God said? You will not eat the flesh or the blood of animals because I've given it to you as an offering on the altar. 
to make atonement for your sins. Jesus is the ultimate offering. So to make reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God, Scripture tells us this, 1 Peter 3.18, look on the screen. Christ also died once for, for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. There's that word, sarks. The real, live body of Jesus put to death. Why? Romans 6.23, because the wages of sin are death. That's what Scripture teaches. And, according to Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So that's how God offers His flesh to buy us back to Himself. So the death of Christ was a real, genuine, actual satisfaction of divine justice. What God required is a sacrifice to bring man back into alignment with Him. And so as a result, Jesus clarified for us, verse 57, you're going to live because of me. Look at the end of verse 57. You want to circle anything in your Bible this morning? Circle that. You will live because of me. So God accepted Jesus' death as full payment for your sins and for mine. One time for everyone who would receive what he's offering. So I'm going to give you a paraphrase according to Kring, okay? If I've lost you at this point, I want you to see it the way Jesus is saying this in modern language. Just as you take food and drink into your body and it gives you life and it becomes part of you, Jesus is saying, you must receive me, what I'm offering to you, so that I can give you life. Clear as mud, okay? All right, let's move on. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now the concept of a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block for the Jewish people of the first century. The thousands who gathered around him are mystified by his statements. And when Jesus says in John 12, 32, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, they had a visceral reaction to that statement. Because when Jesus said this, this phrase that he's using, if I am lifted up, is referring to the cross, an instrument of capital punishment. Like we would say an electric chair or death by lethal injection. When Jesus says, if I am lifted up, they knew immediately what he was talking about. If I am lifted up means I'm going to be put up on a cross, but I'm going to draw everyone to myself. Look at their reaction in verse 34 of chapter 12. We have heard it out of the law. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? See, they're really wrestling with the statements that Jesus is making. These are hard things. Go with me to verse 60 of John chapter 6. Therefore, Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Every one of you, if you haven't had it already, will come to a point where you have a hinge point moment in your life. A hinge point moment meaning this. You're going one direction. You encounter the living God. You choose at that moment to say, I repent, the word turn, 
I hinge point on the truth that I've just learned and I'm going in this direction. I'm going to follow after the living God. These individuals have had this hinge point moment, but because they lack spiritual perception, their hinge point moment drives them away from God as opposed to going closer to Him. They've said, this is difficult. Who's going to listen to this? And when it says the disciples, understand, it's not talking about the twelve. It's talking about his mathetes. It's a Greek word that describes all those who attach themselves to Jesus as his students. So we've got all these people who are following him, who are learning from him, who are being educated by him. And now they're encountering these difficult statements. And it's causing them to bail because they can't endure this. So Jesus senses this. Go with me to verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? They're using the word gongidzo, the one we looked at last week again, the grumbles of displeasure. You have gongidzo. This causes you to stumble? What if you saw me ascending? So Jesus detects there's an attitude issue going on here. And so he checks their attitude and asks them a hard question. Does this cause you to stumble? This is where many of your friends, co-workers, family members struggle with the truth of what we're talking about this morning. This word, scandalizo. Look with me on the screen at the definition for the word that Jesus used when he said, stumble. To scandalize is where we get the English word from. And it's literally saying to us, does this cause you to give up? Does this offend you when I tell you that you have to have what I'm offering? This causes you such an offense? The central argument that they had with him at first was that he was claiming that he descended from heaven, that he came to earth for a specific purpose. And so Jesus, in response to that, is saying, this is hard for you. What if you saw me ascending? You think that's a big deal? What if you're actually there when I ascend to heaven? See, they can't accept that he's from two different realms, and they're wrestling through this. So Jesus, I want you to notice this about the character and nature of your God. He always leaves questions open-ended. He never forces the issue. He allows them time to process what he said. Never forces people to believe. It's an open-ended question. Go with me to verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. (sighs) Now we get it. He's talking about spiritual things. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. So now we understand he's talking about spiritual matters. Go with me to verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So now he's going to call them out on the carpet. Some of you do not believe the things that I'm saying. Jesus is calling them straight out. As is always true with those who do not believe the claims of the Bible, it's never a lack of information. It is a lack of belief. Here's how I know that. 
These are the individuals who were with Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They saw people healed. They saw people fed by the thousands. They've heard the stories about Jesus healing lame people. They've heard the Son of God speaking about the things of heaven themselves. You see, it's not a lack of information. It's a lack of faith. So this is the same city that Jesus was in when he said to them, Woe to you, Capernaum! For if the people of Sodom, the city that God destroyed in the Old Testament, if the people of Sodom had seen and heard the things that you've seen and heard, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So it's not a lack of information. It's because they will not believe. They're stiff-arming God. And how very interesting that John threw this part in. For Jesus knew from the beginning, God knew in advance who would follow, who would receive the truth. So are we seeing an example of free will here? Yeah, this plays back into what we were talking about last week with predestination. They all had the same opportunity, church. Every one of these individuals were given the same opportunity. They've all heard Christ. They've all seen Christ. Yet some choose to walk away. God knows whose faith is genuine and whose faith is fake. Go with me to verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, here's an implication that goes back to what we talked about last week when we said there's a major brushstroke right here. God is the one who enables us and draws us. God is the one who calls us. So according to what we're seeing here in this text, my faith that I have in God is the result of his graciousness in calling me. I want you to see this word granted and understand what it means when Jesus used it. But first, hear me on this. Unbelief is natural to the world in which we live. This world that we live in is full of people who do not believe because it is natural in a fallen world to not believe the things of God. So Jesus is saying, unless my Father, unless it's been granted to you a supernatural act, you're going to continue in your unbelief. Unless it's been granted to you and you've been drawn you're going to continue to act like people around you who can't believe because unbelief is natural to our world. To believe is supernatural. So a commitment to God, if you personally have a commitment to God, you've done something that is supernatural that God has done through you because commitment to God is impossible for a selfish heart that's totally focused on his own purposes. So let's look at this word grant that Jesus personally used. What is he saying when he said, the Father granted this to you? Look with me on the screen at ditto me. The word that's used, ditto me, to grant, to give, bestow, bring forth, commit, deliver up, offer. Do you see the word force there any place? God is not forcing it on anyone. God brought it and offered it. Your responsibility, which Jesus clarified earlier, is to receive it, to eat of the bread, to take it in personally and ingest it. So what we're talking about here is the voluntary nature of our faith, the role that we play 
And this passage that we're looking at is in complete harmony with the cry of mankind throughout millennia. When men recognize, I'm surrounded by unbelief. I want to believe, but God, help my unbelief. Do you remember when a man came to Jesus? He needed his son healed. His son was dying. And he specifically said, Jesus, I need you to heal him. He's going to die. And Jesus said, it'll be granted to you as you believe. And the man's response, look with me on the screen, Mark 9, 24. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Because we're warring against the two sides. That's the cry of our heart. We want to understand this more. This guy's smart enough to actually cry out to God and say, help me. Help me with this unbelief. So the unbelief that you see around you is part of the fabric of living in a fallen world. And the intervention that takes place is God's grace reaching out to you and pulling you in. Now, as a result of this, that's what Scripture says, as a result of this great difficulty, because of this offense, they bail. They can't take it anymore. Why? The teaching is not hard to understand. And especially if we could put ourselves in the first century culture, this teaching is not hard to understand. It is hard to accept. It is hard to understand this declarative statement, but even harder to accept it for this reason. What is Jesus saying, big picture? You need a Savior. Because we are people of sin, we need someone to intervene on our behalf to offer the flesh and the blood as a sacrifice on the altar to buy us back to God. That's what's big picture going on here. It's a declarative statement in this passage about your responsibility. See why I said this is going to make your brain hurt? Because it's woven through it, and you have to dig to find it. But for these people, it finally dawns on them. Hanging around Jesus is about way more than just getting free food from him and a sideshow of watching people get healed. This is hard stuff. So that's why they say, verse 60, you'll see it on the screen, it's a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? This word difficult that they're using here is the word skleros. And it means that your Jesus was being fierce with them. Rough. This is a fierce statement. And Jesus' statement is not incomprehensible, but it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable to them. The same thing is true in the society that you live in today. Embracing the biblical Jesus is just as difficult for modern society as it was for the first century society. God fearlessly rebuked sinners He told them straight out what's in store for them if they reject God. They're going to hell. He didn't bother to write a book called Love Wins just because people didn't like what he said. He's being very straightforward with them and saying, this is what's going to happen. You reject God, this is what you're in store for. You receive God, this is what you're in store for. God doesn't change his position. That's why embracing the biblical Jesus is so stinking hard if you are in a world where you can't understand he's not a politically correct guy he's saying you're a sinner in need of a savior and constantly he's saying that our continuous obedience to the word of God following after him is a real measure of whether or not we really belong to him 
Did you know that you can weigh yourself? And I don't mean stepping on a scale. There's a biblical scale. I'm going to show you the passage. There's a way in which you can weigh yourself to see where you're at in relationship to God. Let's measure yourself. Look with me on the screen. 1 John 2. By this we know that we have come to know him. So there's a measuring rod. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John's not very politically correct, is he? He didn't have any problem calling people for what they are. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, conscious of all that's going on and everybody walking away, the room is just about empty. Jesus turns to the 12 disciples. Look what he says. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? That's a legitimate question. But ask yourself this. Is that question for Jesus' benefit? He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows their heart. So he's not asking that for him. So what's he asking that for? He's asking that for them. It clarifies their stand. How a question is presented, how it's framed, many times determines its response. And these individuals certainly are feeling a little bit weak at this point. It had to be on their mind or Jesus wouldn't have asked it. So put yourself in that setting. Everybody you've been hanging out with for the last few months, your friends are walking away. And Jesus turns to you and says, you don't want to leave also, do you? Hard question. And it had to be on their minds. Watch why Peter gets a gold star. Look with me at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Yay, Peter, you get a gold star, man. You did good. Look at that answer. He's acting as spokesman for the entire 12. The crowd had accepted Jesus because he's free meal Jesus. They get a deal out of it. But the disciples saw him for who he really is, the 12. You can always tell how genuine someone's commitment to Christ is by what they're willing to walk away from. Think about the setting. It's Capernaum. It's the synagogue. Where did Peter grow up? Capernaum. This is his hometown. These are the people he went to church with, the synagogue. These are the people he played football with. He's a fisherman. He got up in the morning, caught fish, went to the market. He sold fish to these people. His community is walking away. And he's standing up and saying, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. He's taking a stand so we know Peter's faith is really genuine because he's willing to walk away from the crowd and stay with Jesus. And he's actually quoting the Old Testament. You're the Holy One of God. It comes right out of Psalms and many other occurrences in it. So when he says, we have believed and have known, interesting Greek structure there, I don't want to make your eyes glaze over, but he's saying something that we arrived at a determinate conviction in the past. 
which has a continuing effect into the future. It's a present tense statement speaking of the past and the future. We have believed and have come to know and we're not changing our minds. You are the Holy One of God. Now I'm going to speculate with you that they do not understand everything that Jesus is talking about at this point. They don't totally grasp it. But it's enough for them to understand to say, we align ourselves with you. Now know this, Peter made a mistake. Peter assumed that they're all believers. He didn't know that Judas was a Judas. Look with me at the next passage when Jesus speaks. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we see echoes of what we talked about last week with predestination. Jesus said, I chose you deliberately. I am the one that brought you in. And yet, not all of you believe. Jesus is very quick to point out, not all 12 are on board with this. One of you is of Satan. One of you is Diabolos. Whether they're instantly starting to think of Matthew the tax collector or not, I have no idea. They may be going there. But we don't know. They're probably shocked. Imagine this. Someone as close as Judas who worshipped with the other guys. That's what we learned two weeks ago. Jesus calmed the sea. He stepped in the boat after he walked on water and it says they all did a face plant. They all worshipped him. Shows you how good Judas was at pretending, doesn't it? Even Peter was convinced. He's so convincing that Jesus says, you are of Satan. And just because he's of Satan does not exonerate him. You know that Jesus said, it'd be better if you had not been born than for you to betray the Son of Man. What are chilling words. He's telling Judas where he's headed. You betrayed the Son of God. And yet, what you just read there in that last passage is not the most offensive thing about John chapter 6. The reason John chapter 6 becomes a hinge point for many people is because what Jesus is declaring here, the essence of what he's teaching, and what people find most repulsive is this. My sin, your sin, deserves the death penalty. And Jesus is saying, I'm offering my flesh and my blood as a substitute so that you don't have to go there. I am the offering for you. Because Scripture says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. That's why he's offering us this. And that's why it's so repulsive to people. Because they're thinking, I'm not that bad. I can earn my way in. No, you cannot earn your way in. You can't take enough communion. Communion doesn't do it for you. It's merely a representation of what Christ accomplished on the cross. What you can do is receive the free gift that he offers. And if you've never done that before, I invite you to make sure you seal that deal today. Take care of that issue right now. But for those who name the name of Christ, I'm going to invite you to celebrate communion with me. We're going to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because we get some very specific instructions about how we're supposed to do communion. So here's how it takes place. This is Paul's writing. For I received from the Lord 
that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. He didn't say, do this so you get salvation. He said, do this in remembrance of me, to remember what I did on the old rugged cross. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you are a personal witness that you believe in the salvation that offers, that's offered on the cross. So we get a warning with this because this is such a serious issue. Here's the warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you've never been at New Hope before for communion, here's the way that we do it. There'll be individuals standing at these tables in the front, in the back, up in the balcony. And when you walk up to one of the tables, they're going to just remind you, this is the body and the blood of Christ. It's what it represents. Take it back to your seat and just hold on to it, and I'll talk you through the rest. But between that moment and now, here's what I invite you to do. I invite you to talk to your Heavenly Father. If there's any unconfessed sin in your life, deal with it right now. Just confess it to Him so that you've examined yourself according to the dictates of Scripture that you find yourself in a worthy position because of the blood of Christ. The sin in your life, cast it upon Him. He's the one that died for you. Talk to Him between now and then. And then when you feel ready, go ahead and stand up where you're at. Walk up to one of the tables. There'll be people there waiting for you.